Welcome to the Hyper Guide Motivational Podcast. I'm so excited to have this amazing person. I've been like reading his books forever, uh, Mr. Brad Taylor. Brad Taylor is a best-selling author of 18 books, and he has a new book coming out that I'm super excited about to read, um, The Dead, Man, Dead Man's Hand, which I, I've already pre-ordered this, Brad, just so you know. Um, he has his BA and his master's. He is an, uh, he's spent a large portion of his career not only writing, but in the military. And he was a very decorated individual in the military. And we'll go, go into that a little bit. But Brad, thank you so much for being here. And I know you're a dedicated family man too. And like I said, yeah. I follow I follow you. I'm a fanboy, so I follow your history. So, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Well, just really quickly, where were you born and raised, and what kind of got you into you know what made you decide to go to the military? Uh, actually, I was born in Okinawa, Japan. Actually, my father was uh, uh, in the military as well, uh, but I don't remember anything of it. I, we left there when I was probably one, uh, and I grew up in uh, Texas and. Small town in Texas. Well, it was a small town. Now it's basically a suburb of Houston. Um, and uh, I actually had no uh, inclination to go into the military. I I wasn't going into the military at all. And I, I went to uh, college, and uh, I was a, a incredibly poor student my freshman year. I was at University of Texas, and uh, I was flunking out basically. No direction in life, just kind of floating along. And my father told me, you know, you flunk out of the military, you're going to the army. And uh, you know, I was 18. I, he did, couldn't tell me what to do, but I'm still my father's son. And I was like, the army, you know, dead enders go in the army. Oh, my goodness. And I was flunking out. So uh, I started researching the army because I'm going in the army. And the more I studied, the more I liked. I was I, I mean, I grew up in the woods, uh, ran around hunting, fishing, camping, that kind of thing. And, you know, they were going to pay me to run around the woods with a rifle and pay me to jump out of airplanes and pay me to do all this fun stuff. And by the grace of God, I did not flunk out of school. And so what I like to call my second freshman year. I uh, joined RTC and decided to make the military a career. How, what was it going like through training? I want to ask you this. I mean, you said you weren't a good student, which is, it's honestly, Brad, it shocks me because you're such a great writer. So that's why I definitely have to delve into that a little bit. But um, what was the training like for you when you're going to the military? I know you went, you ended up in the special forces and you've worked around the world. And I really don't want to go into that too much because a lot of it I know is stuff that you, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's stuff that shouldn't be put out in the public. But um, what was that? What was that like for you? And then, how did that um, help you and influence you into becoming a writer? Well, the I actually wasn't sure. I wanted to go into special forces while I was in ROTC. That's that was my goal. Uh, once I found I found the you know special forces, I found a range of battalions when I was doing the research. And I decided that's a path for me, but I wasn't sure if I could do it. Um, I mean, I didn't want to go in the army and find out I couldn't hack any of this stuff and end up, you know, being a desk jockey somewhere. So while I was in school, I went to airborne school uh, as a cadet, and uh, which was the hardest school the military's ever produced, according to my father. He was Air Force, but he'd been to airborne school. And I got through airborne school. And I was like, that wasn't really that hard. <laughs> you know, that's surely there's something worse than this. And so then I competed for and uh, earned a ranger slot to ranger school as a cadet. They only sent 75 cadets throughout the nation, and all these guys competed for it, and I got a slot to it. And um, Graduated Ranger School my junior between my junior and senior year, and that was definitely a hard school. <laughs> that was where I uh, uh, I figured out okay if I can hack Ranger School then I can make it to Special Forces. Um, and the key thing was don't tell my college people this, but that I wanted to go to Ranger School before I signed a contract because if I flunked out of Ranger School I couldn't hack it 
then I wouldn't go in the army. But if I made it through, then I would. So I, I made it through Ranger School, had the Ranger tab, Airborne Wings now, and uh, went into the infantry. And so once you start on in the infantry, the truth of the matter is the training is not uh, nearly as hard as the life is. Living the life is much harder than the training, like even Ranger School, which is very hard, but you know it's going to end. Uh, when you go into, I went to, I was in a light infantry division, 7th infantry division out in uh, California at the time. Um, and you're humping a rucksack every day. I mean, every time you go out in the field and live like an animal for 35 days, and I mean really like an animal, we didn't have any vehicles. It was light infantry. You were living on the ground and humping a rucksack everywhere you went, you walked and, you know, no sleep, everything, everything you got done in ranger school, you just do as a living. Um, so that was a lot worse than, uh, than, uh, you know, this short burst. Eventually I, I was in, you, you couldn't go straight into special forces. You still can't, there's a certain ways you can, but you had to serve an amount of time in the army, go through your platoon leader time, that kind of stuff. I was rifle platoon leader, company XO and a scout platoon leader. And then I got a chance to try out for special forces. And I went to special forces assessment selection, which they're not teaching anything there. They're just trying to judge whether you're worthy of going to the actual course. Uh, I made it through SFAS, they call it, and then started special forces qualification course, which is six months long. Um, then made it through that. And believe it or not, I, I went back to Okinawa. I was in first of the first, first, first battalion, first special forces group out in Okinawa. Um, and a little side note that's kind of fascinating. Uh, I, I was born in Okinawa, like I told you, which then was Camp Butler. And uh, my daughter was born on Okinawa. And it was now Camp Lester. And it turned out she was born in the same hospital as me. And then what it even turned out worse was that we asked the nurse there, you know, have you changed the birthing rooms or anything? There's four birthing rooms there. And she says, no, the equipment's all changed, but it's been the same birthing room. So there's a one in four chance my daughter was born in the same room as me. That's amazing. Uh, but there's no way to figure it out. But I went through, I did my uh, operational attachment time at, uh, in Okinawa and uh, then tried out for a special mission unit and went through another selection to see if you're worthy of going to special mission unit. And then went through another course, the operator training course, which is another seven month long course to uh, serve in a special mission unit. Brett, what made you so resilient? Do you think was the physical, it sounds like the mental part was more difficult than the physical part or was it about the same? No, it's definitely mental. There's, there are plenty of guys that uh, are, I mean, I'm no physical, I'm not Iron Man. I'm no physical monster. Uh, it is definitely mental. It is uh, um, the drive to never quit, never quit, never quit. Um, and I don't know where that drive comes from. I don't know if it's, you know, for me, it could have been the shame of quitting. I don't know what it could have been. It's just, I was not going to quit. And uh, I mean, you have to have a lot of intelligence. What they're looking for is they want to break everybody down to bare minimum. Doesn't matter what course you're in, Ranger School, SFAS, Q course, any of that. They're breaking you down the bare minimum physically, and then they mentally want to see: Can you still make decisions? Can you still have good judgment? Do you still do what? You, I mean, there's plenty of people who can shoot better than me. There's plenty of triathletes who can run faster than me. Uh, but the special mission unit, there's nobody on earth. And I'm not saying that I'm, you know, usually what I say is, you know, my main character is Pike Logan, and you know, are you Pike Logan? I've said no. I'm not Pike Logan, uh, but I've served with Pike Logan. I'll tell you that. So it's, I compare it to like the PGA tour. Uh, there's, you know, there's a guy who's hundredth on the money list. There's probably 1% of the world that can play on the PGA tour. 1% that has a talent to make the tour. And there's some guy who's hundredth on the money list. Nobody's ever heard of him. Uh, and then there's Tiger Woods. They're both on the tour. Well, I'm kind of hundredth on the money list. And the guys I served with, I've served a lot of Tiger Woods, Pike Logan types. 
Uh, and that's what they're looking for is the uh, judgment and the ability to, you know, continue on when your whole body said, stop, we're done. Let's quit. Brad, were you ever in a situation where you're like, I'm, I, you were comparing yourself during the selection process? Were you ever, because you have so much confidence and I, I really like that about yourself because you just have so much confidence and you're at the same time, you're being really realistic in your presentation right now. So the question I have for you, did you ever see other people were like, for sure, that person's going to make it. I don't know if yeah. I'm going to make it. And then like, how did you work through that? I actually, there was one point uh, at the special mission unit selection where um, every day you get in a truck and they take you to different spots. So you never know how many you start out. You have a picture at the beginning. We started out with like 125 people. Um, and but you after that you were all broken up these little groups and you sometimes saw the same guy sometimes you didn't but you never had any idea how many people were still in the course you never got together again uh unbeknownst to me i mean i know it now because i was in the unit but uh, at the time it's getting whittled away and there was guys when you got in the truck you never knew if you were driving back to the camp as in you got cut or you're driving somewhere else to keep training um and i got in the back of this truck and uh it was just full of studs i mean supermen and uh, we drove back to the camp and I was like, you got to be kidding me. They're cutting all these guys. I mean, I was like, well, they just, they don't, they want Superman. There's no way. I mean, I, I'm proud. I was like, you know, if these guys got cut and I got cut, I did as well as I could. Well, it turned out we were the only ones left and we were continuing on with training, but I thought we'd all been cut and they started going again. So yeah, there's definitely times when I would look around and say, I, when I'd get in a truck and I'd be with a bunch of studs, I'd be like, okay, I'm not cut today because they're not cutting that guy. And then that day I was like, they cut them all. And it turned out we were all that was left. And what was the promotion process like? Was that difficult? And how do they make that selection? Because you you're all is in rank. Yeah. Because you guys are, all of you are like the top of the top. So how yeah, it's you... no different. It's no different than a regular military. You still, my promotion scheme had nothing to do with special forces or special mission or anything like that. When I got promoted to captain, I was still in the infantry at the time, but I got promoted to captain. I went in with every first lieutenant in the army. Uh, when I got promoted to major, I went in with every captain in the army. When I got promoted to lieutenant colonel, I went in with every major in the army. Uh, and they just look at your records. There's, you know, some kind of chicken bones thing they do at a promotion board. Uh, but that was not that you just get compared to everybody else. And when you when I, I'm sure you were thinking about this, you went and got your master's degree. When did you think about like, I want to become a writer? Because like you said, you went that well, you didn't do that well in school. I mean, that's a really big leap going from what you were doing to being this best selling author and, yeah. and, and a great writer. When did that start coming into your mind? Well, it actually had always been in my head. I, I was always a voracious reader. I was the guy, uh, you know, as a child, I would, mom would say, turn the light out. We'd go to bed and I would be underneath the covers with a flashlight reading a book. Um, and I always had in the back of my head one of these days, I'm going to write a book. And it was just something that I thought I would do. And I was, uh, I was at special mission unit. I'd been deployed since 9-11, uh, gone constantly. And uh, I took a break after my squadron command. I got a job teaching at the Citadel uh, Military College here in uh, South Carolina in Charleston. Uh, I was the XO of the Army ROTC department. And uh, that was, I mean, like, I mean, just getting off a bullet train and walking. Uh, I, I would, nine in the morning, I'd be like, what are we doing now? And, you know, once you build your classes, I enjoyed the time there, but once you built your classes and you taught, you're basically this class, I'm going to teach three times this day, rinse and repeat. The next day, I do the same thing, rinse and repeat, start the next class. Um, and I had a lot of time on my hands. 
I mean, I really did compared to where I'd come from. And I had, uh, um, I developed some uh, urban exercises, some adaptive leadership exercise for the cadets. I, I did all kinds of extra stuff. And eventually once that was built and I ran it the next year, it was just kind of rinse and repeat. And so one day I told my wife that, you know, Hey, I'm going to write a book. And she said, whatever. And so I started writing run rough man. And, um, uh, then it, uh, it sold and I had to make a hard choice. I came out in the promotion list for uh, full colonel. I was going back to brag. I was, my next assignment was uh, in Southwest Asia, two years unaccompanied doing counterterrorism stuff. My daughter was entering high school uh, and the book sold. And I couldn't publish the book if I went back to that world. I would just, I'd have to tell them no. Um, and so I had to make a decision and I said, okay, you know, I turned down my promotion, put in my retirement paperwork and decided to give writing a try. Um, you're that, the, if anybody wants to start this series, I mean, you, you, I've read, I've read all your books. And so you can start at any one point because that's how you yeah. kind of give a little good background at the beginning of it. Um, but when you, I suggest people start with one rough man, <laughs> I know it's tough because it's an amazing book and it just kind of just pulls you into the next books after that. The question I have for you is, how do you develop Pike Logan? Now, he, 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 he's the character throughout all of your books. How do you develop that character? And one of the things I really love about your books, Brad, is that you, you it almost reminds me a little bit of Tom Clancy some way, because you do a lot of research. So what I love about your books, and, I, and um, you know, I'm, I'm a doctoral student, so I'm a big voracious reader like yourself. One of the things I love about your book is that I can open up your book and I can learn and transport myself to another place in the world that I've never been to. And, I, and I was, I'd read your books and I'd say, man, this person has done a ton of research on, yeah. on the culture and the history. So I, I feel like when I close your books, I'm smarter than when I started. Um, I so how, how did you develop the character? And then how do, you, how do you determine where you're going to bring Pike next? Yeah, so the, the character itself was, uh, uh, like I said, I mean, I had no intention of writing a series. This is book 18, I think. Uh, I mean, I didn't ever envision that would ever happen. I thought the book would sit on the bedside table and my mom would say, you wrote a really good book, Brad. Uh, so I wrote it as a standalone. And I, I, what I wanted to write was a story of redemption. Was That's the theme I wanted to write about. And, uh, you know, I Googled, how do you write a book? And they were like, write what you know. So that's the reason Pike became a counterterrorism guy. Uh, I call him Pike and Jennifer. Jennifer's in every book, too. Um, she's kind of his moral compass. But the, uh, um, if, if I'd have been a police officer, Pike would have been a cop. If I'd have been a priest, Jennifer would have been a nun. Uh, the redemption theme still would have been there. But I was a counterterrorist commando. So that's what Pike became. Uh, and that's why, I mean, that's what the arc for the first book was. And then, um, you know, when it sold, after I said I was leaving the military, the publisher said, can you write another one? And I was like, I think so. And so I started writing another one. I still keep on touch. I mean, I still do security consulting and things like that. So I keep on my pulse on what's going around around the world right now. And the plot lines of the books either come from a news story that I've seen that there's a lot of news that doesn't make the news in America. Um, and But I keep on top of it. And I'm like, hey, that that's a pretty good story. For instance, the, uh, the widow strike, which I think was book four, uh, was about a pandemic. And what was going on at the time was, uh, uh, H5N1 avian flu, which by the way, is back. It's now killing mammals all over the place. I just read about this morning. They're killing all the elephant seals down in South America. 
everybody's petrified is going to jump to humans. But it, it's a very, very deadly uh, virus. It's much more deadly than COVID. It has like a 40% mortality rate. COVID, I think, was 10%. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is it, it doesn't transfer via the air. It doesn't. It's not airborne virus. Uh, the only way you get it, it's called avian flu because it kills all the birds. The only way that humans were getting it is they were chopping up a chicken that had it and had a cut in their hand. They would get it and die. Well, scientists were just petrified that that thing was going to get out into the uh, uh, human population and just wipe out the earth. So they were developing they, what we now know is gain of function. I was way ahead of the curve on this. They were developing a uh, um, they were making the virus airborne. And the sole reason they were making the virus airborne was so they could develop a vaccine for the virus. If it ever happened in nature, now we'll be able to combat it. We're, we're nine steps instead of two steps. We're nine steps ahead of where we should be. Uh, and they were going to publish that into a journal. And we have a biomedical engineering thing in the United States, and it works for the government. And they stood up, and believe it or not, the guy that was president of that, which nobody had ever heard of, is Dr. Anthony Fauci. Back then, nobody had ever heard of him. This was, I think, 2012, 2013 or so. And they said, you can't put that out on the uh, uh, open net. You're basically telling everybody how to make a bioweapon. I mean, I know you did it for a good reason, but you can't show everybody your research. And there was a fight going on. Well, I read that whole thing and I was like, that's a story right there. And that's what the widow strike became. Uh, so that's how I got that one. Other times it's, uh, um, I'll be honest with you, other times it's my wife wants to go somewhere. So she's she's uh, uh, Irish descent. She's always wanted to go to Ireland. Let's go to Ireland on book research. And uh, I'm like, okay, but I'm like, what am I going to write about? <laughs> so I did a deep dive on the IRA and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that's where that plot line came from. She specifically wanted to go there. So it's kind of a mix as to where, uh, what's going to drive it. Is it sometimes it's a news story, but sometimes just parts of the book are news story. And sometimes you're, people are like, oh, Brad's prescient. He predicted the future. And it's not really the case. It's just that the American, uh, Americans don't really see what's going on. Most of the stuff is really slow burn. So I wanted a bad guy for uh, Ring of Fire, and uh, I didn't want it to be the usual bad. No, it wasn't Ring of Fire. It was uh, uh, I can't remember. Anyway, I wanted a bad guy that uh, I got sick of just the normal people, and I picked uh, Boko Haram. Uh, that was a terrorist group that was doing this bad stuff, and um, they went running around. You know, the book goes through, and then as soon as it gets published, Boko Haram kidnapped all those kids in Nigeria. And nobody had ever heard of Boko Haram. And everybody's like, holy moly, Brad knows all about Boko Haram. He's predicted the future. And I was kind of like, not really. Those guys have been lopping heads off since 2009. It just hasn't made the news in the United States. So it's a lot of times it's things like that that happen. Yeah, and I also appreciate that, and I think you brought this up in interv other interviews, that you're very apolitical. You don't really get involved with that. Yeah. You just kind of present facts. And um, and like I said, you give a really good historical a historical context to things like it, you really make the uh, the reader feel like they're in the country i can't tell you how many times i've read one of your books and i felt like i was there or i wanted to go there because of the books that you read especially i, I will go into i mean the jennifer and her uh, and her company right that she yeah um, so how do you develop how did you develop um her character How'd you develop Jennifer and why did you say it's kind of the moral compass? And she really is a moral compass throughout it. Yeah, they've both grown. That's one of the hardest things about writing a series, which I you know, never would have anticipated because I didn't plan on having a series, um, is the, the characters have to grow. You, you can't have the same guy he was in One Rough Man. Now in book 18, he's still the same Pike Logan. He's going to grow. I mean, that's just a human condition. Just anybody, 
You know, you graduate college, you're different. You have a kid, you're different. You get married, you're different. You grow, things change. Uh, and so originally Pike's moral compass was broken and Jennifer, she Pike bumps into Jennifer and she's his moral compass saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. Kind of brings him back from the abyss. Uh, and that was solely what her sole function. Like I said, I want to write a book of redemption. I've got a guy that's broken. I need somebody that's going to fix him. And that's where Jennifer came from. And I had, you know, she, I didn't want her just to be damsel in distress or just a side coat holding on to Pike's coattails. So I had to think about, okay, what could she offer? She's, she's a civilian. She's not like Pike. She's not been in the military. You know, what skills does she have? And my, both my daughters were gymnasts and that's what they did. And we were at Cirque du Soleil one year watching Cirque du Soleil down in Orlando, Florida. And I was like, that's what she's going to be. She's going to be a Cirque du Soleil person, a gymnast. And so I just, you know, kind of crafted her out of whole cloth. Um, when, what do you want your readers to get out of this? When you're writing this, I mean, I think, like you said, it was almost therapeutic for you, the first book, and you didn't know where it was going to go. And then it kind of blew up and became a, a bestseller. When you're writing there, it, are you thinking, this is what I want the readers, what do I want the readers to get out of this? I don't really, what I wanted to get is that uh, the best emails I get were, I didn't get any sleep last night, thanks a lot. I had to keep reading. I, I don't have any, uh, you know, there's no moral overtones. There's no, uh, I definitely don't do politics. I can't stand it when I'm reading a book and somebody starts pumping all their politics in the book. I'm like, I didn't buy your book for that. I can see that when I turn on the TV every damn day. Uh, I just want a good story. So, I mean, I've got, this is book 18. I've had, you know, administration after administration in the books. I've never said what party they belong to. And then nobody, I've never even mentioned it. Um, one of the things I guess you get away, I would like people to take away, not overtly, but, uh, you know, combat's a gray area. There's, it's a moral quagmire. It is not uh, black and white. You make decisions in combat and it's, you know, in the movies, it's always the right decision, you know, Jack Bauer can sit there and say, let me put a drill bit through this guy's kneecap and I'll get the information to save the world. Uh, combat doesn't work that way. I mean, 99 times out of 100, unless it's Osama bin Laden, you catch a guy, you're not sure he's a bad guy. You think he's a bad guy, but you're not sure 100% that this guy is the bad guy. Um, and you make decisions under fire that uh, sometimes the decisions go right. You're the hero. Sometimes they go wrong. You didn't make that decision to go wrong. But you're, you're, it's going to go wrong sooner or later. And you're going to have to live with the implications of that uh, for the rest of your life. And I try to capture that on the page. It's not, you know, curtain goes down and everybody's happy. It doesn't happen that way. Yeah, I love your pacing. Your pacing is amazing. Uh, there's very few, and I read a lot of adventure books, and I, I read a lot of uh, voracious readers like yourself. And the pacing of your books is just perfect. Um, you're always, you're keeping it exciting. And you're you're informing your reader at the same time, and I can almost feel um, when you're typing away, you know what you're trying to get across. And um, can you tell me what the newest book your, your your book's coming out very very soon in a week or so? Um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the what we should expect in this book? Yeah, it's uh, Dead Man's Hand. Actually, it's right behind me. So it's uh, um, this is one of the ones that actually I didn't want to. Uh, I we, we write about current events. The problem with current events is they're current. And something can go wrong. And so I, I was keeping up with the war in Ukraine when Russia invaded, not because I was going to write a book, but just because I'd stay on top of that kind of stuff. And as I was doing the research on it, I ran across this uh, uh, system that Soviets had. Back in the day, we made an SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, with Ronald Reagan, the Star Wars thing, which said we could knock down every missile that gets fired our way. 
which it never came to fruition, but that's what we bragged about. Well, it scared the Russians. And they said, you know, if these guys can knock down every missile, they, it, it, it's going to encourage them to do a first strike. So they couldn't do SDI. They did what's called the perimeter system, which we called the dead hand in the West, which was basically it's the first generation of artificial intelligence. They had this system in place that would judge seismic activities. They would judge communication networks. They would judge all this stuff. And if all of it fit, the perimeter system would get activated. And then uh, lowly a second lieutenant could launch every missile in the Soviet arsenal. Uh, and it, that's why it was called the dead hand. And basically what was happening was the Soviet Union said, yeah, you can launch a first strike against us, but if you kill all of us, this thing is going. It, so it doesn't matter what you do to us, you're still getting the missiles. Uh, and I didn't even know that thing existed, even though I lived through the Cold War, but it's still there. Putin wow. still has it. Wow. And so I said, man, that's a story. And so I had Putin alter it for fictionally for the book, and he turns it into the dead man's hand, which instead of a first strike, which is how the perimeter system is really designed to be used, a first strike from a nuclear attack, is how it gets triggered. He makes it so if I get killed personally, me, if I fall down the stairs and die, the missiles are going off. And so that's kind of the heart of the story is there's some Ukrainian partisans who say the only way to end this war is to kill Putin. And now Pike's between the horns of a dilemma. He wants to help out the Ukrainian partisans, but in so doing, he's liable to launch a nuclear war. If they succeed, we all die. If they fail, Putin lives. Which way do I go? Well, I'm so excited. You know, as a doctoral student, I don't have much time to read, but I can tell you right now, Brad, I always pre-order your books, and that's going to be done. And that's going to be done like two three days afterwards. I only I only got a couple more minutes. I want to wrap this up, and this is kind of my um, quick questions I have for you. Uh, your favorite uh, authors? Uh, I read murder mysteries, believe it or not. I don't read uh, my own genre. So, John Sanford, Robert Crace, Michael Conley, those kind of books. And favorite place in the world to visit? And I know you've been a lot of places. That's why I had to ask. Yeah, you that. I've, I think we just topped fifty-six countries. The, uh, I guess the, my that's too hard to pick. I really like Switzerland. I'll tell you that. I go back there. There's a lot of places I go back to, though. I guess it depends on what I was doing. If I wanted to go to the beach, I'd just go down to the Caribbean. <laughs> and then, what do you want to rem be remembered for? Like when your kids and and people look back on Brad Taylor, what do you want to be remembered for in life? I. Would mostly, I guess, that I was a good man and a good father, more than anything else. A distant and, fifth would be he's a good writer. <laughs> yeah, I know you're such a great family man, and I and I get that from um, from you know your acknowledgments and doing the research, and I, I really appreciate that. And then the last part, I guess, would be if somebody wants to get a hold of and read your books, what's the best way to do that? I know, I know, it's on Amazon, it's at the bookstores. Yeah. What's a what's a good place to get? Yeah, it's of? you know the typical wherever books are sold, but they can go to my website, uh, bradtaylorbooks.com, and every one of my books has an excerpt of the book, so they can get a taste of it right there. And I know you have little short mini books too that you put out yeah. sometimes as well, correct? Yeah, those are the Task Force shorts. They're kind of novellas. And that's just me fleshing out characters that I couldn't put in the novel because it would slow it down. I get an idea and then I just say, I'll make a little short story out of that. And so they're there too. Brad, I wanted to tell you, I know you got to go. I want to tell you, thank you so much. Please tell Danielle as well. Thank you very much. Sure. Um, you know, I'm a small independent podcast. Um, and I just want to tell you, you're going to inspire my listeners so much. Um, thank you for your service. Thank you for writing amazing books. Thank you for just being a good person. I really appreciate you. Thank you for thank being you. here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Take it's care, fun. my friend. You Take too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.